Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're getting inside the boardroom of commodity traders, commodity businesses, and understand what are the key questions they face for business planning for 2022 and beyond in the new normal of energy transition and a commodity supercycle and all of the volatility that that brings. Our guest is Xavier Veillard. Xavier is a partner at McKinsey and runs the global commodity trading practice and also heads the energy practice in France. Before we begin the episode, as always, if you wanted to support the show, please leave us a review or a star rating on the platform you're listening on. Also, I'll be moderating two panels at the upcoming Reuters Events Commodity Trading 2021, one focused on the commodity supercycle with previous guests like Jeff Curry, and another focused on digitization and transformation in the agri-markets. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Xavier, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Now is typically business planning time for commodity businesses in general. We obviously are facing a very different world to a couple of years ago in terms of the volatility we've experienced and also generally secular rise in prices across the board. And what we're talking about today is what are the top questions that execs as boards are facing as they think about next year, but also beyond you know, the next three to five years? The first one I wanted to talk about is just the extraordinary volatility right across the commodity suite, across energy, ags, and metals. What does that mean for all businesses across the value chain in the commodities world as they, as they see that today? Thank you, Paul, for the question. I think, first, when we look at the volatility, it is extraordinary across all commodities. So if you go in agri compared to 2020, most of prices are have doubled for wheat, for corn, for barley, for example. If you go in the energy market and you go, for example, in the global LNG prices, they have tripled compared to last year. If you go to Europe on natural gas, they have been multiplied by three to four. On power, multiplied by three to four. And if you go in minerals, the story is also very similar. If you look, for example, at copper, at nickel, at iron ore, the surge has been exceptional compared to last year, about twofold for some of these commodities. So indeed, when we speak to clients and they procure commodities, the first thing on their mind is how to cope with this volatility and what they can do. And so essentially, the levers that they have, they're not that many. There are basically three levers. The first one is you pass through the cost to the consumer. And for a lot of clients, they just cannot do it. Or at least they cannot pass through all the costs. The second thing they can do is they can hedge the cost on financial markets. And for some of them, they have already hedged part of it, and it's a bit too late to hedge more, so they have to think about it more proactively for the future, but you have to take the part that you could not hedge. And the third thing they can do is renegotiate with their suppliers different agreements, different formulation of the contract, different indexation, or ability to fix the price ahead of time. And so what our clients really tell us is out of those three levers, what should be the optimal mix within the boundaries of what they can do? And going forward, how do they better anticipate how to act upon these levers and how to estimate the risk going forward 
and whether or not it's within the margins that they can they can have. And one of the things we typically work on with them is what we call cash flow at risk, which is essentially to look going forward based on the volatility that we see and stress testing that volatility. Where could the cash flow go if it exceeds certain threshold and out of the three levers that I described, what they can do? It's really what's on their mind now. There have been some announcements, for example, here in France of large building materials company who saw their energy procurement costs increasing by 30-40% over one year. It's quite remarkable the pressure that some of these industrials or, or large players are facing, and therefore there's really a call for action. Yeah. So to be able to put in place those hedges, actually you need a lot of systems, processes, people, knowledge to be able to do that, at least to do that effectively when you're buying multiple commodities, multiple forms of energy for a global company. And I imagine those departments, if they existed, have been relatively um, scaled down over the last decade as, as volatility in prices just wasn't there. How do organizations tackle that? I mean, do these organizations have the institutional capability to hedge and to look at these problems? Or is this, for a lot of them, just taking them by surprise because the institutional knowledge of the previous rise up in prices in in the the mid-2000s has has largely been forgotten? It's a very good question, Paul. So I think there is a wide spectrum that we see out there. There are a few companies, often within within a consumer goods company, actually, that had set up over the past 10 to 15 years what we call a CPRM function, a Commodity Procurement and Risk Management function. Why? Is because for some of the players the margins that they have on their product is extremely sensitive to the price of commodities. If you look at some companies procuring dairy products, dairy powder, or companies procuring ethanol for beverage, or companies procuring wheat and so forth for biscuits, etc. All of these companies sometimes have very thin margin on some of these products, and therefore it became quite strategic for them to invest in commodity procurement and risk management. However, for a lot of other companies, the cost of commodities was rough, was much more lower or more marginal in the overall cost base that they had. And therefore, it's not something that they regarded as very strategic to invest in or to increase in sophistication. And now what's happening is that with the surge in energy prices and in commodities, suddenly the share of cost that is represented by energy and other commodities is pretty much going above a certain threshold for some companies above 20%, above 30%. And therefore, it starts to become very big on the agenda of sea level to see how they tackle that category. And that's where we see an investment in commodity procurement and risk management infrastructure. Now, to your question, indeed, it takes quite a few components. If you want to actively hedge, You need to actively know your positions, actively know your exposures, refresh these exposures over time. You need to know which instruments you're going to hedge them with. Are you going to take futures? Are you going to take options? On which markets are you going to go? If there's not a direct instrument to what you want to hedge, are you happy to hedge with a proxy instrument or a proxy market? And if you do so, what is the induced risk? These are not easy questions to answer, and it requires people with knowledge of the market and the associated infrastructure to then transact. And so for some of the player, putting this in place can take a lot of time. And therefore, uh, some players are looking for partners. And uh, it's not easy sometimes because in the old days, banks and commodity desk of banks 
were quite active at offering some of these solutions. As we know, the banks retracted from this area since the, the financial crisis. Therefore, it's not easy for players who do not want to grow this organically to find a partner to do this more inorganically. So I, I think there will be a lot of questions. Yeah, I was going to say, actually, banks that build up huge teams offering precisely this knowledge and service, so, you know, that's largely gone away. Absolutely. Okay, fascinating. And I think we're going to come back to the end of this discussion because I think we could go on and talk about procurement for the rest of the time, right? But um, we're going to go back to what organizations can do and what the options are to outsource this because one of the differences between now and, say, 20 years ago is that a lot more has been automated, a lot more has been digitized, and a lot more transparency in the market. So you know, it's not quite the same heavy lift as it was. I remember working with an airline 15 years ago to build their commodity risk management team. But that aside, okay, so the next big question that you've highlighted that seems to be you know, is very much on the top of mind of at least the active traders is what does it mean the new normal of trading in a net zero market? Can you pick that sentence for us? What does it mean and, and why is that so relevant right today as businesses plan for the future? The question is very broad. Let me split it in three parts. I think the first thing is the energy transition is creating profound changes in the supply side of the energy mix. We are phasing out coal. In some countries, we're phasing out nuclear. It's going faster in some countries than others. It creates a lot of imbalances. At the same time, there's a surge in demand for electricity with electrification and transport in industry. So we are really changing the supply mix. And at the same time, the demand side is evolving quite rapidly. So what this is creating is it's creating a lot of imbalances in matching supply and demand at each hours of the day for electricity or more broadly, during certain periods of the year for gas, for example. And so that creates surge in power prices. It creates surge in gas prices and global energy prices. And what we expect is that until we stabilize the future energy system, which means until there is a stable intermittent supply coupled with a dispatchable supply, and that, that system is resilient, then we're going to have extreme volatility on energy prices. And therefore, any player that is exposed over large cost of energy supply for the next few years, or any energy player who has generation assets, who has production assets, a retail distribution asset, they will need to be extremely careful when it comes to risk management. That's one thing. The second thing is when it comes to new commodities. So. We used to have oil, we still have oil, but now we have uh, other things coming out of the ground, which is just substituting oil. It's called copper, it's called nickel, it's called lithium, cobalt. And so what that means is that we are replacing some old markets, old commodity markets, with new commodity markets. And in addition to these minerals that I mentioned, we have also a new markets for biofuel, for biodiesel in Europe, for bioethanol, in Europe, but it's also in the US, in Latin America, and so forth. So we have new commodity markets, which creates a lot of opportunities for producers, traders, and buyers in terms of capturing arbitrage, managing liquidity risk, taking positions, managing inventory positions, and so forth. So that, I think, is the second thing that we see in this market. And I think the third thing is that 
as these markets change, evolve, the the governments and society as a whole has not made clear choices on what will prevail in the future energy system and the future system in general. So for example, will we have a lot of nuclear or not? Will we change market design rule for a power in Europe? Will we uh, use or not cobalt into our batteries or at least limit to the extent we do so? And so given these uh, sources of uncertainty on how the system will be done, the energy system will be done, on uh, what will be used or not, what will be allowed or not allowed, we can have also significant disruption in what we anticipate going forward for the uh, favorite option or not. And so we need to be ready for it and we need to build optionality around some of the choices that company make. Yes, and I find this fascinating. So let's park the new markets for a moment. Let's talk about that in, in a second. But you've got this this new normal, which I think is it's elegantly put by you that you've got a volatility right now, you know, for, for all the reasons that you've described and we've described in previous episodes. You've also got an ally to that volatility in prices on the existing commodity suite. You do have this huge uncertainty in the fact that many of these commodities, whether it's energy or even on the metals piece in particular, their pricing is down to government policies, unlike oil, which in some is a more established market, right? So my question is is twofold. Firstly, if you're in the leadership team right now of a commodity trader, I imagine liquidity, cash management, access to liquidity, balance sheets is probably your number one focus. Is is that a fair statement? Where does that sit in business planning today? On the question of liquidity and cash. With extreme volatility comes very high prices, and therefore the value of the position or the hedges that some players have in the market is skyrocketing. So let me give you an example. One client of mine is a player with generation assets, and they had hedged part of their generation margin in power. The value of their hedges used to be around 50 to 100 million over the past three years on average. This value exceeded $1 billion over the past few weeks. And the hedge was cash outflow. And obviously, the cash inflow will come later. As it's a hedge, you hedge future income that you expect to receive. So when you're in that situation, unless you have access to cash from banks or from your shareholders, you can be very quickly in a situation of insolvency. And I use that example because I think that in the system out there, with the extreme volatility that we have, we basically have players who are in very challenging situation when it comes to liquidity and to ac- and access to fund. And therefore, we need to anticipate that probably that these constraints, that situation will go on for the next few years. Players will have to be extremely careful in understanding who is exposed to these liquidity risks and who is exposed to potential insolvencies, because very quickly you can have a domino effect in the system. So that's something to really watch out for. And again, those credit departments aren't the same level of sophistication they were perhaps a decade ago at the very height of the last commodity super cycle. And also, what I guess I hadn't appreciated until an upcoming episode we're working on, how specialized commodity trade finance is as a banking function. And there are far fewer banks who understand 
the need to cover margins and actually that these might be hedges offset against a physical position that will more than cover the the trade if you'd like but there are far fewer banks that have that institutional knowledge and that capability to be able to even service the liquidity demands that are out there today yes it's true i think in general when it comes to commodity trade finance a number of banks have retreated from their uh, historical volumes and, and market share that they had. So it's not the same world that we knew 10 to 15 years ago when it comes to a, a commodity trade finance. And it's, it's, uh, it's more concentrated when you, you look at the legacy player and then you have a few new players that are also entering the market. And I would say sometimes also outside of the banking industry. So you have funds yeah. dedicated to provide a structured commodity trade finance. Now, with the ability to to build platforms around it, it's easier for some of the funds to deploy capital in this area. So the landscape is changing. So new products. So that, to me, sounds like you know a huge opportunity. You suddenly, you know, there are more potential commodities entering the suite as you, you know, biofuels through to hydrogen, maybe carbon is obviously a key one, and then a suite of metals that are there, you know, predicted prices are going to skyrocket as consumption goes up to fill demand demand for electric vehicles, wind turbines, and alongside just general digitization. How are organizations thinking about this? Is this a case of you've got to build in everything and maybe one will work? Or is there some nexus points like carbon? What conversations are you, are you having? And, and, and what are the questions you're being asked about the new products? This is also a very good question. So I think first, if we look back at the landscape of uh, new commodities that we see, you have the very visible one that we talked about, all these new minerals that relate, for example, to the battery supply chain. You have also the obvious one, the carbon market, which we can come back to, but it's, it's, it's very heterogeneous in the way it is set up globally. Uh, and then you have some less visible one. For example, we have now a market for energy efficiency certificates in a number of European countries, and there is an exchange that was set up on it. You have markets for electric capacity in some European countries. You have uh, markets for renewable obligation certificate or renewable energy certificate, like in the US. So you have also a lot of what we call commodity paper markets that got created on the back of the energy transition. So the spectrum is quite wide in terms of all these new markets. What we see is that it becomes tough for some players to understand the technicalities of these markets. Are they liquid, not liquid? which instruments is uh, is good to use or not who are the counterparties is it am i exposed to a liquidity crunch and so forth it's not easy to build that intimate knowledge of these markets unless they become very big and very liquid like it's the case for the european carbon emissions uh, scheme the eu ets and so what we see is that players go a bit in two options either they have limited exposure to what they really need to procure from these markets or sell into these markets. Or you have the other option, which are players who are building a desk with people dedicated in understanding very deeply the nature of these markets, trying to identify arbitrage in these markets, trying to identify what these markets are correlated to, and therefore how can they better anticipate price movement, liquidity evolution, 
overall regula uh, uh, regulatory evolution surrounding these markets, underlying drivers and so forth, so that they can be best positioned to grow and capture value from these markets. And I would say that what we see more in general is rather option one. And option two is limited to sophisticated trading houses at the moment for a lot of these markets. And again, when the markets transition and become very liquid and uh, much more, uh, quote unquote, democratized, then you see a wide adoption. So today, all utilities, oil, oil and gas players have emissions trading desks. You have also very large industrials who are comfortable buying in and out of uh, emissions uh, positions. So that's the case, again, when the markets are big and liquid. But otherwise, it's a bit the two archetypes that we see. So if I understand, you've got organizations that have these obligations. They have, therefore, to be involved in those markets and build a familiarity with it. That will naturally increase liquidity. You've got some of the more sophisticated trading houses who have the capacity to make what are very expensive investments, hiring the people, building the desks, the systems to be able to support them to start to build those books and understanding of the market. That's very much for those the bigger trading houses who can more speculatively, if you like, start to think about products that might be of much greater liquidity in the future. To date, historically, two notable exceptions, well, three, for the most part, you've had trading houses, traders, either kind of be energy or metals or ags. You've had a few that have crossed over. In the energy transition, in the future, this new market, this new future, do you see the necessity, if you're an energy trader, you're going to start to need to be a metals trader because ultimately everything's converging around energy storage in the form of a battery. In an electrified world, the metals in the energy market becomes much more allied than historically. It's a very good question. I think we have not seen it. Question mark whether energy trading desk will evolve towards this area. It's true that in the past, what we saw was more of an archetype of cross-commodity trading houses, like the ABCDs of this world and so forth, that were using the fundamental know-how of trading to replicate it across commodities, whether in agri, in metals, and so forth. We actually saw there was more of a specialization for some of these players, so they divested some of their non-core uh, uh, commodities. Now, it's true that today there is a question on how energy trading desks will evolve and whether or not they could go into the supply chain of batteries. I think we have not seen it. It's an interesting question. What we do see at the moment, however, is definitely an expansion towards the uh, what I referred to earlier, the paper commodities. So expanding into renewable energy certificates, expanding into energy efficiency certificates or the so-called white certificates, expanding in emissions trading, expanding into uh, biofuel tickets, so-called RINs in the US, for example, and so forth. That you clearly see. So I would say it's still around the traditional power, gas, and fuels market, the certificates that are growing around it. Definitely, you see an expansion in these markets. And I think there's a really interesting question whether or not in the future they could go in the uh, minerals uh, value chain. So one of the trends that has been firmly established before the recent volatility and super cycle prior to the pandemic was this the penetration of advanced analytics into the commodities world. 
most of the big trading houses were building out very sophisticated analytics functions. That seems to tie very nicely with, as you alluded to yourself, if you're starting to build out these new desks, these new markets, actually there's probably more capacity now to do it, it kind of analytics first to try and find how the markets operate and, and what they correlate to. Where does that conversation sit today at the exec level? Have these desks been a success and are they continued investment areas? Where does that whole bucket, if you'd like, sit? Look, it is a huge huge priority. I have been in conversation at XCOM level where the CEO of large energy companies have used the full agenda of the XCOM to tailor and structure large analytics investments related to trading. It is an extremely strategic and critical investment area. Why is that the case? If we take the example of Europe, We are shifting towards what we call real-time power and gas markets. Real-time means that we are trading power and gas on slots that will go down to five minutes. Let's see in the future. It could really be even more granular. But basically, things are being traded constantly and at a speed that is limiting the ability of humans to trade. So what happens is you need to automate. And when you automate you actually are also able to bring in algorithms in the way you place your orders. And you actually also observe lots of patterns as soon as you you automate and you have lots of uh, uh, transaction flows. And some of these patterns offer opportunity to trade differently. And therefore, very quickly, uh, you would like to invest in algorithmic trading and, uh, and the related models need to be built. And that's what we see a lot right now across uh, power and gas. I think we see this a lot also maybe at a more macro level, so less on technical trading, more on fundamental trading around other commodities. And it triggers huge investment, not only in system and IT, but in people. So we work a lot with clients who are scaling significantly their quants team data scientist, uh, data research team. They are trying to collect, analyze, and leverage huge different streams of data, meteorological data, satellite data, general market data related to price, transaction activity, and so forth, and make the so what of it to best inform their decision. And so to build the infrastructure and to build the intelligence around it, it comes with specific talent that you need to bring in and not necessarily the talent that they traditionally grew or had in-house. So it's creating a profound shift, again, in terms of investment in IT and system and models, but also in people and the environment that you need to build around it. Yes. To talk to that, I a few months ago, uh, a CEO of one of the big global commodity houses told me that um, he realized a few years back that they ceased to be a commodity trader. They're now a data trader. Um, and they're a data business. And I think that speaks directly to that. And you're quite right. The This is requiring them a huge investment on the personnel front. You know, obviously, I guess the, the only area I have any expertise. And it is also actually a real challenge because they are having to take, they're competing for those data scientists, those technologists with other industries. And 
the commodities world has has two challenges there. One is is relatively esoteric, you know, telling your 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 partner that you work at a commodity trading house is less recognizable than working at a Google or wherever it might be. And secondly, of course, is all around the ESG challenges of the commodity world as well. Now, I would argue that if you want to make a profound effect on on the environment, working within the commodity world to change it is going to have far more impact than working in a, in other industries. But that does pose a real challenge that we as as search consultants in the commodities world face every day as we're building out those teams. In fact, our technology practice is one of our most successful this year, pointing directly what you said. Absolutely. Yeah, I can only agree to what you said. It's, there's a huge war on talent for this. Mm. Okay, so absolutely strategic, incredibly expensive, as you pointed out. This kind of moves us, I guess, nicely, kind of coming full circle. You're a commodity, you know, you, you, you're not a, your main strategic mission as a business might not be to be a commodity trader, but you need to trade commodities to manage your exposures. As you said, you know, most of these businesses run on razor margins. And if your, if your energy price is going up, 50 100 percent that can be an existential threat then also to build these commodity businesses a commodity trading function is very expensive there are relatively few people out there that's talented expensive but also now the analytics that you'd require for you to be able to compete in those markets that's a huge investment and that kind of brings us to this concept of trading as a service should you build or should you buy, outsource, the commodity risk management you face? And I imagine that's a question that you get asked yeah. significantly by clients across the value chain. That is a great opportunity for trading desk, whether part of large energy or commodity organization or pure commodity traders. Let me give you a few examples. Let's say you're now a renewable developer and you have renewable assets in Europe a 50 megawatt wind park here, a 20 megawatt solar farm here. They used to be with feed-in tariff, and now they will be merchant. For some of them, you will be able to maybe secure a PPA, a power purchase agreement from someone, but maybe not for the full amount of your production. What do you do with the rest of your production? You will need to hedge it, but you need to hedge on the power markets, which are not easy markets to, to trade around. Then. Maybe some of your corporate off-takers, the buyers of your PPA, may not want to have the intermittent power that you offer. They would like to have firm power because they do not want to deal with the intermittency. So how do you sell them firm power? So with that example, what you can see is a relatively small player suddenly needs to deal with hedging decision on power markets, very different by country in Europe and also very different in terms of liquidity. You need to deal with structured PPAs. How do you move a PPA from as produce to firm? And therefore, you need to structure uh, different offers. So what do you do? You're small. You do not have the commercial sales force to do so, the infrastructure, the trading know-how, the access to the market. So often what you need to do is you need to go and find someone who can provide this for you who can offer this as a service. And I think that will grow significantly because the number of players, small developers, small funds, PE, private equity funds, have exposures 
to power markets here in my example, but it could be to others, but do not have the scale to justify investing into building a proper trading desk is going to grow significantly. And so if you are on the other side, a large commodity trading house, a large trading desk of a big energy player, then there is a huge opportunity to provide trading as a service. I think that will be accelerated with the energy transition significantly, and it should be looked at as a key opportunity. Just to understand that. So typically, these are services that organizations, at least when I think about the US power market with energy management agreements, some of the banking back in the day, that they would effectively do at cost, if you'd like, because that then gave them the flow from which they could then trade around. That was always the kind of the the Nirvana-like you know, of the idea of the, the commodity trader inside an investment bank was they could take all of this customer flow and trade around it, gaining from the intelligence and the positions from that. Do you see the trading houses offering that as a as in that type of manner? Is that how it will end up? Or could this be a significant source of profit for them? We see a lot of bespoke structures. So to highlight a few, if we stay around uh, this example of renewable power, you have the basic structure, which is providing market access services. So I will help you put your power on the market. And shall you want to hedge some of that power, I can do it for you at a fee. So basically, I am providing access to markets for a fee. It's the most plain vanilla option that can be offered as a service. But then you may offer also to off-take the power for a fixed price and then do whatever you want after with that power. You may offer to hedge some of the volumes, but not take the physical delivery risk. So you can customize that agreement with a lot of different ways. And then you get into what you highlighted, which is that you off-take all the risk, power risk, what we call volume risk and shape risk, power price risk, sorry, volume risk and shape risk. Then after the flow is with the off-taker, with the trader, who can do with it a number of things because it's part of its portfolio and he can commingle it with other positions that he has to optimize the value from it. And that we see uh, more and more players going into this area because that's where they generate what we call all the extrinsic value. And as you highlighted correctly, off-taking, aggregating, and monetizing these flows is where a lot of players would want to go. So it's really an opportunity for, for large trading desk or energy traders to, to capture additional sources of value. It's kind of fascinating, right? Because that also then takes us back to the top of the discussion, which is one of the challenges with providing those services always been having a sufficient balance sheet to be able to wear all of that risk. And that's why the banks got in 20 years ago. And I guess, is there an argument that going forwards for all manner of reasons, from the volatility alone to the overall macro shift up in prices to the need to manage all of this risk, the balance sheet is back. And could we see, dare I say, all of those banks that have exited the market be coming back in over the, if this is a sustained rally, you know, a sustained phenomenon of energy transition? Yes, I fully agree. One final question. When you're talking to XCOMs, your clients, 
has this year has the has the return of volatility, the return of these these incredible price rises. The the energy and commodities are back on the front pages of the of the the broadsheets. Has this taken the market by surprise? Has this really shocked businesses? I'm sort of fascinated by like how quickly everything's turned. Yeah. No. Look, it took a lot of industrials and uh, clients by surprise. That is clear. Why do I say uh, Why do I say this? Because we saw a lot of clients who did not proactively hedge their commodity exposures. We saw clients who had to seek liquidity, cash, to cover their margin calls in a rush or almost in emergency situations. So again, not anticipated. We have seen clients who had huge margin compression because they could not transfer the rise in the commodity prices to their customers. So this is it's quite extraordinary what is happening now. One element that we often advise our clients around is to invest in risk management, in systematic stress test, because what we're seeing now probably will happen again. And volatility is really the new norm. And extreme volatility, I should say, is the new norm because we've had volatility in the past. But what we're seeing now is extreme. We have never had, never had, at least since it has been recorded, gas prices multiplied by five over a period of six weeks. That is just remarkable. We have not had electricity traded above 250 euro per megawatt hour on a recurrent basis for baseload a week ahead. We are witnessing things that were just never recorded in the past. It can be quite dramatic in terms of impact. We have seen a number of retailers in the UK defaulted because they just couldn't transfer through this commodity price risk. We know that for some of the players, there's a huge margin compression effect as a result of what uh, we're seeing. And we know that for uh, some players, there are extremely uh, uh, concerning uh, limitation when it comes to uh, their cash position and the liquidity risk related to some of their hedging activities. So to answer your question, I think it was not anticipated. I think people are living with the consequences right now, and it's very reactive in the way they deal with it. And they need to shift to a proactive risk management approach going forward, because this will happen again with potentially even more extreme situations. Well, it's been a real joy having you on, Xavier. I think that was a fascinating discussion, and I can imagine that um, the board meetings and the XCOM meetings are, are long and uh, challenging right now across the commodity sector. So um, a lot of food for thought there. I hope we can have you on again in uh, next year and, uh, and see where we stand then. Paul, it was really a pleasure. Thank you very much for the conversation and hope to speak again soon. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and Human Capital, a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www.hcinsider.global, where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offering as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.